Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and welcome to the fabulous month of October. Today is October 1st, if you are listening on Publication Day, and it just happens to fall between two of the dates on the calendar that are international or national black cat days, August 17th and October 27th. So I was inspired for this episode uh, way back in August because I was reminded of my black cat, Biggie Moat, who is named after a demon character in The Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. And so I found this great article on the History Collection website written by Natasha Sheldon about disturbing historical demons you wouldn't ever want to run into. So I'm going to share a bit of that with you and then a great article written about one woman's experience with the Master and Margarita and then tell you just a little bit about my own little demon cat, Biggie Moat. The word demon conjures images of evil entities out to tempt or torment. However, originally the term referred to something very different. For the word demon comes from the ancient Greek for spirit, daemon. These classical demons were not evil per se. Instead, they were gifted with divine powers to help and harm and acted as intermediaries between the gods and humankind. Some were minor gods, others dead heroes. To the Romans, they were also guardian spirits of individual people or places. Daemons could be good or evil, dependent on their character or circumstance. However, in the 2nd century AD, the meaning of the word daemon changed. For a Greek translation of the original Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint Bible, for the Jews of Alexandria used the term daemon in specific reference to evil spirits, and so the concept of the demon as an agent solely of evil was born. Whether wholly spiritual or in a physical form, the sole purpose of these diabolical entities was to corrupt or torment humanity. The concept of malign forces at work in the world is a universal one. For across all time periods and cultures, the idea of evil spirits has been used to explain the unexplainable, be that disease or demon became a cross-cultural term for the entities behind such events. It also became a way of relabeling the gods of defunct religions. By downgrading fallen deities to the demonic rank and file, they were discredited and made less attractive objects of worship. In fact, the demons of any given time or place tell us a great deal about the preoccupations of those cultures. Here are just a few of those demons from history. The jinn of Arabic and Islamic mythology closely matched the original classic daemon. Neither good nor evil, the jinn were supernatural spirits born of smokeless fire long before the creation of humanity. The jinn were spiritual beings, formless shapeshifters with magical powers, who are ranked somewhere between humans and angels. They were not immortal and humans could kill them, however, a long lifespan compensated them for these disadvantages. In Persian mythology, the jinn had their own land, Jinistan, whose capital was the city of jewels. However, the jinn also haunted the human world with favorite places of residence being the desert, as well as rivers, wells, and even marketplaces. 
In this sense, they are very much like the Roman genii loci, spirits of place, and it was customary to ask the local jinns permission before drawing water or even traveling into alien territory. If they appeared before humans, the jinn could appear as animals, monsters, or people. Whatever form they took, people could quickly identify them by their flaming eyes, which were also vertical rather than horizontal. This unusual attribute gave the jinn a sinister appearance that married well with some of their more suspect traits. For although the jinn could be helpers, they were also known to be malicious tricksters. In the worst scenarios, they would raise storms and cause disease, insanity, and death. Islam teaches that every human has an evil jinn whose sole purpose is to tempt its human opposite number into evil. This reputation for malevolence is compounded by the fact that the chief jinn, Iblis, is also known as Azazel, the Islamic devil. The Azuras made their first appearance in the Hindu Vedas, a collection of poems written between 1500 and 1200 BC. However, they seem to originate in the Iranian Ahura, the celestial beings of the Zoroastrians. While Zoroastrians regarded the Ahura as a force for good, Hindus saw the Aziras as evil. These Hindu Azira included various classes of demons, the Nagas, or serpent demons, the Ahi, the demons of drought, Kamsa, an archdemon, and Rakshasa, or harm to be guarded against, a group of demons who haunted cemeteries and caused violent deaths and caused people to commit foolish acts. Along with the devas or gods, azuras seemed to be a way for Hindus to conceptualize the balance between light and dark in the world. For although Hindus classed the azuras as evil, they also regarded them as equal to the gods, hence the meaning of their name which came from the Sanskrit for divine. The azuras merely acted as the balancing opposite numbers of their better-natured brothers and sisters, and explained why bad things happen. Both the Azuras and Devas were children of the great celestial god. However, the two camps of celestial siblings became divided over the quest for the elixir of immortality. Both wanted to drink it to ensure everlasting life, so it was agreed that whichever group discovered it would share it with the other. However, when the Devas discovered it first, they kept it for themselves. Thus, the gods became immortal, and the Azuras did not ensuring the two groups remained in perpetual conflict. The Chinese also had tales of demons who wanted to be gods. The Yaguai, or strange ghosts, or strange devils, were mythical Chinese demons who, like the Azura, desired immortality and godhood. They included in their number animal spirits such as the fox spirits and fallen celestial beings. However, even though they acquired their powers through the practice of Taoism, the Yaguai cared little for the balance between light and dark. They were firmly on the dark side and would stop at nothing to achieve their goals of de deification. They believed they could accomplish this goal by consuming the life force of holy men. One tale of the Yaguai appears in the 16th century Chinese novel Journey to the West. 
The story tells of the pursuit of the holy man Zhuang Zhang by Bai Gu Zhang, or White Bones Demon. However, unfortunately for Bai Gu Zhang, Zhuang Zhang was traveling in the company of Sun Wukong, or the Monkey King. The company first encountered the evil spirit disguised as a young girl searching for food. However, the Monkey King saw through the demon's disguise and drove it off with his staff. The Bai Gu Zhang tried again, firstly disguised as an old woman and finally as an old man. This final time, the Monkey King killed the demon, revealing its true form, a skeleton. Staffs, however, were not the only way to deal with Yaguai. As they lived in the underworld, the Chinese believed they were afraid of the light. So bonfires, fireworks, and torches were the perfect way to keep them at bay. Some demons, however, started off as gods. From the earliest times, one man's god was another man's devil. To the Mesopotamians, the Lamasu, or the Shitu, were powerful, human-headed, eagle-winged guardian spirits of the home or the state. The Mesopotamians erected statues of these powerful entities, who had the body of either a bull or lion at the gates of palaces or cities. There, they were well-placed to ward off invading armies and ensure peace to those within the city walls. In ordinary households, images of the Shadu were carved on clay tablets and buried under the threshold to ensure peace and happiness within. When the Israelites encountered the Shadu, however, they interpreted them in a very different way. Some of them took up the Mesopotamian custom of worshipping them, hence disapproving references in the Old Testament to how such people sacrificed unto devils not to God, to gods to whom they know not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 32. To the Jewish mainstream, the Shadu were false idols that possessed statues and masqueraded as gods. As such, they were evil and so became the Shadim, demons associated with destruction, illness, and human sacrifice. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons, stated Psalms 106, referring to those worshipping the Shadu Shadim. Jewish myths gave these Mesopotamian demons a variety of different potential origins. In one, they were God's half-finished creations, left without bodies. In another, they were the demonic descendants of serpents. The final myth, however, made the Shadim the descendants of Adam, the first man, and his original wife, one of the oldest demons, Lilith. Lilith probably has her origins in another Mesopotamian entity, Lilithu, an Assyrian storm demon. Both demons began to appear in their respective Sumerian and Jewish texts at around the same time. Both of their names have their root in the Semitic root word for night, the time of Lilith's most significant activity when she was an especial threat to children and women in childbirth. Lilith, however, started out very differently. According to rabbinic myth, she was the first wife of Adam. Like Adam, Lilith was created from the earth, making her equal to her husband. Adam, however, expected Lilith to submit to him, something Lilith refused to do. The story goes that Lilith refused to lie beneath Adam during sex and eventually tired of him, so she decided to leave him and eat him behind and headed for independence in the wilderness. 
Three angels tried to persuade her to stay, however, Lilith refused. In the wilderness, Lilith became the mother of demons, either as a legacy of her time with Adam or through her union with Samael, a fallen angel. These demons, who counted the incubi and succubi amongst their number, were then sent out to plague humanity. As for Lilith, she haunted people in storms or during the night, earning herself the name Screech Owl or Night Monster. I'm going to go ahead and stop it there and leave it for you to read the rest if you are so inclined. The link to that is in the show notes. Now, I don't know if you can hear this, but I've got a special guest with me right now. Biggie! Biggie! Oh, bless his heart. So, several years ago, I was fostering for a rescue organization, and I got this little black teenage cat, and he was named something like Tom or other. But I decided, since I was reading Master and Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov at the time, that I was going to rename him Bigimote after the demon cat in the story, who is one of my favorite literary characters. He's so charming and ridiculous at times. Um, it's really worth a look. And I'm going to share with you this article called The Master and Margarita Showed Me Just How Easy It Is to Mess Up a Nation by Viv Groskop. When I first heard of Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, it was 1993, and I was living in St. Petersburg during my university year abroad. I was teaching English very badly, barely coping with temperatures of negative 15 degrees Celsius and fighting a losing battle with the Russian language. This book made me realize I was not going to give up, and that I really wanted to be able to talk to the people for whom this book was everything and to try to understand something about their lives. I now realize I was probably drawn to The Master and Margarita because its title is virtually the same in Russian as it is in English, Master e Margarita. And it gave me a boost that finally I could understand a book title without thinking about it. To give you some idea of what a big deal this was, Crime and Punishment is Prestuplinia e Nakazania. Soon afterwards, I discovered the Russian word for picnic was picnic and felt as if I had cracked the Enigma code. These are the desperately pathetic but so important little moments in life that make you think, maybe I can do this very difficult thing after all. I read it in translation, a Harville Secker paperback with a picture on the cover of the graffitied stairwell of the Moscow block where Bulgakov lived. At this point, I was nowhere near able to start a book in Russian, let alone finish one. At the end of the year, I could read the language, but by then I had come to the conclusion that people who make out that literature is so much better in the original are just idiots who want you to know how clever they are to have mastered a language. No matter how fluently you know a language, you will never read a book in the way a native speaker will read it. So it's pointless to make out that anyone is missing something by reading a book in translation. All this is to say that I had to endure many stunted conversations. Remember, I could not really speak Russian at this point, with Russians violently berating me for not reading Master E. Margarita in the original. They were glad I was reading the book. It was then and is now the favorite book of most Russians, but highly suspicious of the idea that it could possibly be the same book in bourgeois English. 
Just knowing the book at all felt like finding the key to a secret world. In 1993, during the Yeltsin era, things were changing fast. But essentially, St. Petersburg was as much as, was much as it had been for the previous 30 years. It was common for people to insist I must be Latvian, as they were so freaked out by the idea of meeting someone from England. I would frequently encounter people who had never met a foreigner before and genuinely did not believe they would meet one in their lifetime. It's strange to think that many of the people I knew then, who never believed they would own a passport, now live abroad. Reading Bulgakov's satire of 1930s Stalinist Moscow helped me to see just how easy it is to mess up a nation psychologically. In the novel, the devil and his retinue, which includes a wall-eyed loon and a talking cat, manipulate the master, a writer, and Margarita, his muse. Simultaneously, because the narrative flits between two stories, Pontius Pilate condemns Christ to death in Jerusalem. I read it as a book about how to go on living when your spirit is broken. The controversial and much-analyzed conclusion to the novel is about the master and Margarita being granted peace, but not light. I also read it as representing the mental state necessary for surviving in the Soviet Union. You can have some kind of inner peace in your internal life, but you've never, but you're never quite off the hook. More importantly, I was buoyed up by the book's sense of humor, mixed with the outlandishly fantastical. I figured that if this was a country where this was everyone's favorite book, then underneath all the suspicion and misunderstandings and the accusations of being a Latvian and the constant demands for information about the Beatles, there must be a properly beating heart. It took a while for me to acquire enough language to get to it, but eventually I did. At the end of that year, just before I was due to go back home for my final year at university, I made a pilgrimage to Bulgakov's flat in Moscow. This was seen as a slightly touristy and embarrassing thing to do, so my then-native boyfriend left me to it and made a detour to the newly opened McDonald's to buy multiple cheeseburgery, another word that cheered me greatly, to take on the 10-hour train journey back to St. Petersburg so that people at home could try this great delicacy. Round the corner from the flat, where the graffiti from the book cover was still intact, is Patriarch's Ponds, a park where a key scene in the book takes place. As I sat alone on a bench overlooking the ponds, a stranger came up to me and gave me what we called the foreigner test. It was the quickest way for Russians to work out if you might be a source of Levi's, using a simple question, excuse me, what's the time? If you can answer quickly, you're Russian. Before he'd even finished asking, I shot back barely looking up, half eleven. As he walked away, I grinned and thought to myself, finally, ya master, I am the master. I do highly recommend this book if you have not read it. Um, I personally have not read it in translation because guess what? I don't speak Russian either, but it's such a funny and strange unique book and the character of Biggie Moat who my little demon cat is named after is as I said one of the most endearing characters I've read um, and a little crazy but likable so if you enjoyed today's episode please tell a friend if you hated it tell an enemy and thank you for listening to Blue Stocking <laughs>